Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, talk or action. Islamophobia is real. Racism is real. You should not have to face that hate in your communities, in your country. Words of unity after a mass murder of a Muslim Canadian family in London, Ontario. But what concrete action will the federal government actually take to combat Islamophobia? And with the G7 summit just finishing up, when will details on a vaccine passport finally emerge? The Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair, joins us, and so will the CEO of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Then, free speech. That's why they're speeding it through. That's why they're rushing it through, because they don't want people to have a voice. Why is the Ontario government using the notwithstanding clause for the first time in order to overturn a court ruling on free speech and election ads? Is that government limiting free speech to silence their political opponents or making elections more fair? We'll be joined by Conservative MPP David Pacini. Plus, green chaos. It's been, in a word, distracting. Um, and so I'm going where I can do my best work. A Green MP bolts from her party and joins the Liberals. Are deep divisions in the Green Party threatening to break it apart? We'll speak with Green Party leader Annamie Paul and the MP who just left her party, Jenica Atwin. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. They met, they talked, and today they wrap it up and leave. But what have the leaders of the G7 who met in Cornwall, England, actually accomplished? Look, part of this was just a reset of relationships. This is the first summit for U.S. President Joe Biden. So, of course, there was significantly more multilateral cooperation than during the Trump years. But COVID still taught the agenda. The G7 pledged to give 1 billion vaccines to the rest of the world, with Canada promising to donate 100 million. But what about vaccine passports or the two Michaels in China? Any details on those issues? Let's find out. Joining me now is CTV's senior political correspondent, Glenn McGregor. Glenn, what have been the big takeaways for Canada from this summit? Yeah, I mean, you're right. This G7 is a much more collegial and cooperative affair compared to previous in-person meetings. That's in part because the U.S. is represented by Joe Biden, of course, and not Donald Trump. But there's also broad agreement on a lot of the major issues around the table concerning that pandemic, that commitment to supply a billion doses of vaccine to poorer nations, with Canada pledging 100 million. That's actually a combination of funding that's previously announced for the COVAX fund and through sharing surplus doses on order that won't be needed once everyone in Canada has had both their shots. But the leaders also reached an agreement to deal with future outbreaks with the goal of developing diagnostic testing, treatments, and approving vaccines within 100 days of first detection. And part of that plan includes reforms to the World Health Organization, and in particular, how it deals with China, where the COVID outbreak began. A lot of criticism of WHO, how they handled that. China's detention of two Canadians was also discussed by leaders today, and in a brief one-on-one -on -one chat between Trudeau and US President Joe Biden. As always, climate change also on the agenda here, Trudeau has been pushing the issue in each of his bilateral meetings with other leaders. And as we're in England, there's a royal presence here too. Trudeau had a virtual audience, a video chat with the Queen. He brought her up to speed on a couple of issues, domestic issues, including the ongoing process to choose a new Governor General, of course, her representative in Canada. 
This summit also kind of a goodbye of sorts for German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who's retiring from public life. She was, until now, effectively the dean of the G7. But once she leaves, Trudeau will be the longest serving leader, if he's still PM, when the G7 meets in Germany next year, Evan. All right, Glenn, appreciate that. Thanks so much. So lots of details still to be worked out, but time is running out. After all, over 70% of Canadians already have a first dose of the vaccine and over 4 million have already had the second dose. So why is there still no firm guidelines as to when the border will reopen or how vaccine passports will actually work? And in the wake of that horrific massacre of a Muslim Canadian family in London, Ontario, when will the federal government finally deliver on its promise to crack down on online hate? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair. Great to have you back on the show, Minister. Um, we have to obviously start with the horrific events in London, Ontario, the mass murder there. Uh, MPs on Friday passed a motion to convene an emergency summit on Islamophobia. Can you give us any details? When will that happen? Uh, what will be accomplished there? Yeah, Evan, we heard very clearly. I, I attended the the uh, vigil that was held on Tuesday in London. We've heard very cl clearly from um, the, the Islamic community and, and about very legitimate concerns about Islamophobia. Uh, one of the things that they've asked for is a national stomach. And what I can tell you is that, that certainly my officials and, and as well as officials in other uh, aspects of our government are working very hard with the community to, 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 uh, to introduce and, and to bring forward that summit. I think th those are important conversations uh, that need to be, to be had. And, and I think there's some important work to be done there. Okay, so that's been worked out. But what leaders in the community across the country have been saying a lot is we don't want more talk, we want action. Your government has long promised legislation to crack down on online hate. You haven't delivered on that. When is that going to happen? Yeah, I can, t I can tell you that we made th that commitment in the throne speech. The Prime Minister has put that in my mandate letter as well as, as the Minister of Heritage, the Minister of Justice. We've all been working very hard on bringing forward that legislation. Um, we, we, th there's still a little bit of work to do, but we've made an enormous amount of progress. Um, I think we can anticipate at the very first opportunity. I don't know whether we'll get that done in the next uh, nine days of, of Parliament sitting, but we know the urgency of this. We are all seized with it. Okay, but we haven't seen that legislation. As you say, there's only uh, nine days left. It probably won't happen, so we'll find out in the fall or whether there's an election there. So that's on the back burner. So again, you know, we don't know about the summit. That's just on Friday. The legislation is not tabled. So then a lot of folks in the community said, look, I'm not sure I trust the Prime Minister who does for action. There's a lot of words, but for example, uh, this week he was asked about Bill 21 in Quebec, which restricts people from wearing religious garb. Um, he was asked if it's discriminatory. He succinctly said no, but sir, the, the, the CEO of the National Council of, of Canadian Muslims has explicitly said it is discriminatory. That organization fought it in court. How can your government and the Prime Minister say a law that restricts someone who wears a hijab from becoming a teacher or a police officer is not discriminatory. Yeah, well, we know that there are there are uh, citizens in Quebec who be, who are challenging that matter to the courts, and 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 so I think I think that's in, in important that they have the opportunity to do that. But Evan, I've I've spoken very extensively to the national uh, Muslim uh, organizations in this country, um, and I, just even today meeting with with a number of imams um, from within my own community, and 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 I can tell you that they're very concerned about the rise of Islamophobia, um, and 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 the terrible crime that took place. 
place uh, last Sunday in, in, in London, Ontario. Um, we are prepared to act, and, and we well, okay, are. But let's, you know, but, but, we're but working, let's we're talk working about with those communities, just, and we will bring forward the legislation that we've promised okay. that we will bring forward. But, we're but, prepared to act. But let's not skate away from Bill 21, because that's what they're talking about. The Prime Minister said it's not discriminatory. Again, if you're wearing a hijab, you can't become a lawyer, a teacher. I'm asking you, as the Minister of Public Safety, do you think Bill 21 is discriminatory? I think that we, we need to, within our Constitution, respect people's uh, right to, 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 to exercise their, their, their faith and, and their beliefs. Um, those, are, those are values that, that we uphold and defend, and certainly we're listening very carefully to, to the community's concern with respect to you know, the rise of Islamophobia and the discriminatory practices right. that may exist. But Minister, a few years ago, in 2019, Mr. Trudeau was asked explicitly about Bill 21. It was an election issue. You remember it. He said, yes, we may have to challenge it. In a debate, he even chastised NDP leader Jagmeet Singh for not standing up, and he used the word for discri to discrimination by not challenging Bill 21. Now he says it's not discrimination, and your government's not challenged it because Bill 21 is popular in Quebec. Is the message you're sending to the community, we'll say we're standing up for you against Islamophobia, but if it gets in the way of our political strategy of getting votes in Quebec, I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can say. Evan, I, 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 I want to be very, very clear. I, I, I am quite prepared to stand up against the discrimination against um, any Canadian citizen and certainly the Muslim population um, of, of this country for, for the discrimination uh, that, that they may experience. We know that this, this matter will be challenged by citizens in the courts. We think that's the appropriate forum uh, for, this, for this matter to be resol resolved within the courts. But you've got a government that's saying you can't do it. You can't become a cop or a teacher if you wear it. Now, all right. Let me just quickly move on to vaccine passports. I know Prime Minister is at the, the G7. Four million Canadians already have the second dose and they're wondering, okay, what can I do with the second dose? Your government has said by July, people with two doses won't have to quarantine when they come back to Canada. But there are no details about what people can do, when that's going to happen. When will we get details on that and on these vaccine passports? Yeah, a couple of things, important things there. I think the vaccine vaccination of, of Canadians is important, and it's going to be one of the ma major factors that's going to facilitate um, a reopening of our economy, of our society, and it's going to have an impact on the borders. And and so we've already sent a very clear signal that as um, a, 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 a certain level of, of vaccination is takes place in Canada, we believe that we can use vaccination as, as a means to ease certain border measures. The health major, minister already indicated that that, that it will have an impact in July on, on the requirement to use, for example, the government-assisted accommodation upon arrival. We also believe that as we reach certain thresholds of vaccination, as, as the majority of Canadians are fully vaccinated, that you know, the, the, I think the benefit of, of, of vaccination is we, it, it does enable us to reopen many right. aspects of our society, our economy, and our borders. Um, I will also tell you that we are working right now to, to ensure that we have the, the capacity in place at our borders to do vaccine verification so that when, when we reach the threshold, when the Public Health Agency of Canada tells us that it is now safe to, to ease our restrictions based on the level of vaccination and, and the reduction in case counts in this country, then when we're, when we're able to do it, we will have a plan in place and we will give Canadians as much notice as possible so that people can be prepared for the changes that will take place at that time. I know. Time's running short, though, as you know. You told me earlier... Uh 
late last week, I guess, that this vaccine passport idea could be digital, that it might be embedded within something called the Arrive Can app. Can you give Canadians any details? They're dying to know how this is going to work. What would this Arrive Can app do? Uh, how is that going to work? You know, we're looking at how we can certify and, and verify that people are have, in fact, that two doses of vaccine that, that can be used as part of the decision making as to their eligibility to enter into the country and whether or not they would be subject to various um, restrictions and, and, and quarantine measures, for example. And, and so one of the tools that we have been using at our borders is the Arrive Can app. It's a digital application in which Canadians have been able to provide the border service officers with digital information about, you know, their health conditions and and, and whether or not, um, the, you know, to, to provide evidence, for example, of the pre-arrival tests that they have to submit. 90% of air travelers have been using that app. It streamlines and makes far more efficient at our borders the, the entry of, of, yeah. of people coming into the country. And so we're going to make modifications to the Arrive Can app where people will be able to upload their information on the, their vaccination to, to be able to demonstrate, you know, documentary evidence that proves that they've had right. two doses. It'll be available digitally. It will facilitate the movement of people across our borders. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair, good to have you on the program, so I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Evan. All right, coming up, party implosion. The Green Party has just lost a third of its caucus with the departure of Fredericton MP Jenica Atwin to the Liberals. That follows weeks of internal party division. Can the Green Party recover? We'll speak to Green Party leader Annemie Paul and newly minted Liberal MP Jenica Atwin. Stay right here with Question Period. And then there were two. I'm Jenica. I'm from Fredericton. And I have the same priorities and the same values that I've always had. In a shock announcement on Thursday, Green MP Jenica Atwin crossed the floor. She's no longer Green. She's now a Liberal MP. She said that internal debate over the Israel-Palestinian crisis, quote, certainly played a role in her decision to cross the floor. She, of course, had called the Green Party leader Annamie Paul's response to that crisis, quote, wholly inadequate. So that leaves only two sitting Green MPs now. Is there a leadership crisis in that party before the actual leader has even won a seat in the House of Commons? Let's talk about that and lots more. We are joined by Green Party leader Annamie Paul. Great to have you back on the program. Um, people are trying to figure out what happened here. Jenica Atwin explicitly said that the rift in your party over the Palestinian-Israel crisis certainly played a role. As you know, she called your response that inadequate. Um, what does it tell you about the fault lines inside your party that you've lost a third of your caucus? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to have seen Jenica go. I was certainly disappointed by her decision, but I accept it. Uh, I am here to try to do the best I can to propose the best policies that I can on behalf of our members. As someone who has extensive experience in diplomacy and conflict prevention at the international level, the statements that I put out were the ones that I thought would be most helpful and would give Canada a way to help to facilitate peace and to protect civilians. Uh, so I feel that I did uh, what I could given my experience. And uh, again, I wish Jenica the, the best. I'm disappointed. I wish I'd had the chance to persuade her to stay. I still have not heard from her uh, directly about her decision. Uh, but, you know, she's made it clear that she feels that she has a better home in the Liberal Party of Canada. How do you convince people with an election that could be imminent that your party is actually relevant, coherent and organized? 
Well, on a day like this, it's tougher to do than on other days. I'm going to admit that. You know, there's no point in glossing over the fact that losing one of our MPs is uh, is a blow. And certainly, as I said, I would have loved to have convinced Janneke uh, to stay. Uh, we had worked together really closely and very well throughout uh, the half year or so that I've been in this role. Okay, uh, you were in London at the Vigil, London, Ontario. So in the wake of the mass murder of mm -hmm. a Muslim Canadian family, many federal leaders have been asked to stand up to Islamophobia. Now, they have not stood up to the Quebec Bill 21, which restricts teachers, police officers, bus drivers from wearing religious symbols. It's popular in Quebec. We all got the politics there. But many critics believe it targets Muslims uh, for wearing things like the hijab, uh, any kind of display, which is why this family was targeted, according to police. Um, I want to hear you straight, because people are looking for your view. Do you condemn Bill 21 in Quebec? Do you believe it leads to intolerance or not? So uh, thanks for the question and I have well before I became the leader of the party I have said that uh, I do not support that bill. I agree that uh, it, um, it is discriminatory. I think that it violates fundamental freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom of religious expression. I think that it should be repealed. Uh, had I been the prime minister or were I to become the prime minister, I would repeal it. Uh, I have known many strong Muslim women who wear hijab, and hijab for them is a symbol of strength and power uh, and a strong symbol of their faith. And I think that it is just a tragedy that we have so many people right. in Quebec, so many students in Quebec, for instance, that uh, will never have the experience of being taught by a woman in hijab because of this discriminatory law. Okay, so so you would like the federal, you think the federal leaders, by the way, Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Singh, and Mr. O'Toole, you don't think they've had a strong enough response and you would want a constitutional challenge to Bill 21, even though, by the way, Quebec would, they'd use the notwithstanding clause. Yes, first of all, I'm very concerned about the, uh, the cavalier use of the notwithstanding clause in general over the last little while by a number of provinces. And I think that uh, the federal government needs to be a much stronger in making the point that it is intended to be exceptional and not to be uh, you know, part of the regular political toolbox. But absolutely, uh, I believe that the federal government should intervene in the cases that are currently before the court. They should have challenged this bill from the beginning. It is discriminatory. It should be repealed. Uh, it should never have been passed in the first place. All right, I got to leave it there. A Green Party leader, Annamie Paul, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Evan. Always nice to be with you. Okay, so that's the version from Green Party leader, Annamie Paul. Let's hear from the MP who crossed the floor to join the Liberals. Uh, Janica Atwin, great to have you on the program. And again, you said that the Israel-Palestinian crisis uh, played a role. How big a role did that play and how big a role did the leadership of Anna Paul play in your decision to finally leave that party? Um, well, well, thanks for the question, Evan. And it played, you know, a, a massive role. It, it is absolutely the, the issue that, you know, was the catalyst um, to the decision, the very difficult decision that I had to make. Um, and so it's not about our difference of opinion, um, but it was in really how, you know, that difference of opinion played out over a number of weeks. But look, you have called Israel an apartheid state. Um, your views are now totally opposed to the party and the government that you've just joined. And your views are probably more at home in the Green Party than in the Liberal Party. Why should people believe you that this was such a, as you say, a massive issue if you joined a party that diametrically oppose your views on what you say is a critical issue? And that's an extremely fair question. Um, first, I have to say my, my comments, so it was a Twitter post. I'm also in, in 
slightly embarrassed to know that a lot of this is precipitated from social media. Um, but I said, hashtag end apartheid. Um, right. So basically it's so that people can educate themselves on what apartheid is, how it operates, how it impacts the people who are oppressed under that system. Um, it's, it's, I'm really very much my, my approach is in learning and in dialogue and in conversation. Um, and so it's important to, to know, you know, specifically how um, I, I laid out my comments that day. Um, I'm and sorry, I do, but just to be, just to be fair, you know, when you tweet end apartheid and you say I stand with the Palestinians, you're calling Israel an apartheid state. Are you backing away from that now? No, no, no. I certainly stand by what I'm saying. Okay. I'm just like so that's again, opposed to the to liberal the position. Learning. I'm just saying you know you've joined a party that does not believe that at all. Well, and and that's the thing is that there's I know there's a large caucus and that there is a difference of opinion uh, within the caucus and and I've been told that you know they've had you know very good you know healthy discussion and debate about this um, so I know I'm going to a place where I'm not alone in how I feel about this issue um, and that I'll have that collaboration um, to work through it and come to right. understanding and so that's what I'm very much looking forward to. Okay, just this is interesting. So who, do you you say there's other liberals that believe Israel's an apartheid state? Can you tell us who? <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to name names, especially because I'm, I'm, I'm you know, building okay. those relationships right now. But yeah. Okay, but you, there's going to be a credibility issue because you're going to have to face voters whenever the next election. You ran as a Green. You're joining a party that has a different view on Israel than you have. It's a party that supports fracking, the Greens don't. It's a party that bought a pipeline, the Greens opposed it. Uh, so what do you tell uh, your constituents that say, like, who are you? Well, that's a great question too. And, and I'm the same person. Everything I've ever said, I, all my speeches in the house, my questions, my member statements, election, you know, the conversations I was having at the door, they're absolutely the same. Um, and I think what's what's gonna be, you know, a positive thing for me is that the Liberal Party understands that about me. Um, and they're accepting of my views, of my difference of opinion. They see it as a strength that I can come in and have these difficult conversations. Um, I was very open and honest in my, you know, disclosure about how I feel about TMX, for example, in particular. Um, so now it's just, you know, I said I was going to go hold government to account as a member of Parliament for Fredericton, and I will continue to do that right. from the inside, you know, well, with well, friends. Well, but why not, like, again, I'm just trying to figure your views out. Uh, they seem to have done, done a 180. If you left the Greens, there was another party you could have joined that would be more aligned with almost all of those views, the NDP. I know they don't accept floor crossers, I get that, but you could have negotiated something with them. Uh, did you think about going to the NDP? They certainly seem more aligned with your views. I have nothing but love and respect for for my NDP colleagues, and of course, I you know could picture myself there uh, you know, at times. But um, I also know that you know I, I was not a, not approached, um, and I, I and I was approached by the the Liberal Caucus, and so um, or the Liberal Party. And for me, it was just about you know one door closing, one you know right. door opening. Was this about Annamy Paul then and her leader? She's only been six months in the job. Is this really about her leadership? If Elizabeth May was still the leader, would you still be a Green Party member? Um, perhaps <laughs> I, I really wish Miss Paul well, and I don't want to continue to be a thorn in her side and to be difficult in any way. So I, we have irreconcilable differences at this point. So yes, um, that had a, yeah, everything to do with it. Um, and I would probably still be there if Elizabeth was uh, the leader. Yeah. Uh, just finally, what, what's your, she is the leader now. What's your view of the Green Party? Do they, is that a party in, in serious trouble coming into a potential federal election? Well, I, I wish them well. Again, I, I don't want to hurt um, anyone in the Green Party or their electoral chances. And I just, I just, you know, would be thrilled to have other Green MPs in the House to, to work alongside, uh, you know, as, as colleagues, uh, you know, bipartisanship. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate on that. And I, right. I wish them well. You know you are a liberal. You can't wish for more Green Party now. You got, <laughs> you got to figure out your team coach. Um, 
Janica uh, Atwin, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Evan. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up, an assault on free speech or protecting elections from big money. Why is Ontario suddenly using the controversial notwithstanding clause to overturn a judge who ruled their law is unconstitutional? Progressive Conservative MPP David Pacini joins us next to find out. Stay right here with Question Period. So why did the Doug Ford government in Ontario suddenly recall their legislature for an emergency sitting? Was it related to the COVID pandemic? Nope. Was it to address the Islamophobia situation in the wake of the attack on the Muslim family and the mass murder? No. It was about the debate over free speech. And for the first time in Ontario's history, the Ford government will invoke the notwithstanding clause. Why? Well, they say they want to restore their controversial election financing law that was struck down and deemed unconstitutional by an Ontario court. Now, if you haven't followed this, let me just give you some quick background. Ford government passed a law that would prevent any third party, like a union, from running any political ads for a full year before an election. Uh, that's double the current restriction, which is six months. But a superior court judge said no, that would be unconstitutional. Now, keep in mind, Ontario has a fixed election date. The next election is scheduled for June 2nd, 2022. So the Ford government said, fine, if the court says it's unconstitutional, we'll use the notwithstanding clause and overrule that and essentially ignore the charter. How do they justify this? Well, let's find out. Joining me now is progressive conservative MPP David Puccini. Great to have you back on the program, David. Um, so you got a judge who deemed your government's changes to the Election Act unconstitutional. Why does your government believe that doing something unconstitutional is still worthwhile? Well, Evan, I mean, I would dismiss the premise there that it's unconstitutional, an integral part of the political compromise that led to the patriating of Canada's constitution in 1982 was section 33. So just to be clear, we are using the constitution here and it's about preserving our democracy, Evan. On the lead up, you talked about a number of important things that this government's been, been moving quickly on. Another one is preserving our democracy because as it stands today, there are no limits on billionaire contributions from billionaires, corporations, third party interest groups, foreign entities. And, and Evan, I mean, this, this would be a return of the Wild West and, and potentially foreign entities. And that's the most concerning piece here. Okay, two things you said, let me, let me push back. Using the notwithstanding clause is not unconstitutional. As you say, Section 33 is part of it. I'm saying the Superior Court judge said what your government's trying to do by doubling the restrictions on third-party advertising is unconstitutional. That's literally the word he used. Used. Your government did not choose to appeal that, did not choose to challenge it. You decided to do something no government's ever done, use the notwithstanding clause, and simply overrule something to now justify a law that the courts have called unconstitutional. Why? So let's just first say this is not something that no other gov governments have done. Quebec frequently uses the notwithstanding clause. We've seen Saskatchewan, Alberta. Others use it for far more controversial purposes. Um, you know, I think preserving our democracy is worth it, Evan. And, and I think what you're looking at here is, uh, is the six to 12 month uh, duration uh, you know, of time. And I think it's important in noting what our chief electoral officer, Greg Asenza, said. And, and he said in 2016 that third party election ads need to be monitored between elections. And, and I quote here, and he said, not just in the immediate lead up or during a writ, but throughout. And he said the scale of third party spending 
uh, even in Ontario, is greater than it is at the federal level. In your law, just for example, in, in the law that your government's passing, the term is a political advertisement. There are real concerns about who defines a political advertisement. The government will be able to define it. Your government doesn't care what judges say. So how broad will what's, what defines a political advertisement? Who will define that? No, again, I mean, we've worked closely with the chief electoral officer. This is an independent body. Let's not, I mean, it's, it's integral that we rely on our chief electoral officer. We have rigorous uh, spending uh, and, and we have rigorous scrutiny over the spending that goes on. I, as a candidate, am subject to limits. I always have to disclose by the authorizing agent of from, from where the, the dollars were spent. And I would add that when you go online today, um, every single riding association in my riding, you can see a detailed breakdown of everybody who spent. It's about following the money, Evan, ensuring that that money's from Canada, not from Russia, not from other countries, and ensuring that Canadians are having a say in our electoral process. they already did. I mean, remember, influence. again, I'm not arguing against that. The judge said six-month restriction is fine. Twelve months is a violation of the Constitution because it infringes on free speech. Just last question for you, Mr. Puccini. Um, if your government is willing to use the notwithstanding clause to prevent um, third-party advertisers for a year, um, what's stopping you from using uh, the notwithstanding clause again and further do things that might violate the Charter of Rights and the Constitution? I mean, I can think of no better reason to use the notwithstanding clause than to preserve the essence of our democracy to preserve the ability of rural members to go up and down Third Line Road and have their voice heard, not being drowned out right. by foreign you, entities. You know your critics don't view it like that. I'm just saying, you're, you're, you know your critics say you can think of no better way to use the notwithstanding clause than to silence people who are buying ads to criticize your government. They, they literally view this as a, as a legal muzzle that's unconstitutional because a judge said it was. Evan, anyone can, can purchase ads to criticize our government, to criticize any idea or any policy, but it's about the debate on policy. And maybe they, uh, the opposition, don't have a concern with foreign entities and, you know, perhaps it's their uh, friends that are, that are contributing these tens of millions corporate dollars. But I think uh, in principle, and something right. we've seen across this country, Canadians want to ensure that they hear from the people who seek to represent them, that there's an open playing field to do that, and that we're not drowned out. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Dave Pacini, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Evan. Coming up, the race to get the second shot. As the U.S. and Canada promise to send vaccines to the rest of the world, why can't you cross the border to get another shot? Is Canada actively trying to stop this from happening? The Scrum is here next with our special guest, the mayor of Windsor, Ontario, Drew Dilkins. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, you might think that as the Prime Minister's at the G7 promising to send 100 million doses of vaccines to the rest of the world, that Canada would, at the same time, be doing everything it can to help Canadians get a second shot. After all, U.S. states are literally overflowing with vaccine supply that Canadians desperately want. But get this, the mayor of Windsor, Ontario, a key border city, is facing pushback on a plan to vaccinate his community with doses that are literally being wasted in the U.S. across the border. So under the proposed plan, the Detroit-Windsor tunnel would be used as a vaccine clinic with a pharmacist giving the shot from the U.S. side of the border. And interest, of course, is high. There are thousands of people on a wait list. But the federal government is standing in the way. In a letter from the Public Health Agency of Canada to the Windsor mayor, uh, Drew Dilkins, 
They say if the U.S. nurse or pharmacist reaches across the border to administer it to a person in Canada, that is considered importation of product and requires an expression of no objection from Health Canada. In other words, uh, you couldn't get it. So with so much concerns about the Delta variant, should this be the time for more creative solutions? And why is there still no concrete plans for vaccine passports with almost 4 million Canadians currently having a second dose? What can they actually do? So the Scrum is here to break down the vaccine confusion. Uh, of course, we've got Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. We've also got Marika Walsh, the Globe and Mail reporter here in Ottawa. And our special guest is the mayor of Windsor, Ontario, Drew Dilkins. Great to have everybody here. Mayor, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you asked the prime minister to raise the issue with Joe Biden. Uh, is there any movement at all to actually expedite what seems to be a plan to get people a second dose? No, the, <laughs> the short answer is no, there's not. And it's frustrating for us to sit here and watch uh, the, the, the extra vaccination efforts that are happening between Alberta and Montana. Uh, people actually, Canadians actually crossing into the United States to get a vaccine and then returning to Canada. And so that's being allowed to happen. But here, when we come up with unique and creative ideas, the answer is no, 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 you can't do it. Uh, and the thing here, Evan, is this isn't being driven by Drew Dilkins, the mayor of Windsor. This is being driven by some of the 1,200 people who live in my city, who cross the work every day in healthcare in Detroit, who are watching what's happening over there saying, we got to do something to help the people at home. And they're the ones coming up with creative ideas, trying to get these doses back to Windsor and into the arms of waiting Canadians. Yeah, so they can't. Joyce, what do you make of this? Like, like it's strange now. Canada's actually getting some of its Moderna doses from the U.S., but we can't get this proposed vaccine clinic to, to work. What do you make of this? Some of those doses actually come from Michigan, uh, which is kind of interesting. Well, you know, the conclusion is obviously Health Canada doesn't want people to be creative. I can understand, you know, in a way that they want to control crowds. But what the mayor, you know, very creatively, uh, I may add, is, is suggesting and offering and organizing makes total sense. Uh, let people get, you know, what you need is more vaccines in arms. That should be the mantra of Health Canada, not how can we stop people from not getting vaccines, from not crossing, the, from, from crossing the border. We're going to stop that. We're going to tell the mayor that if a nurse in the States, on that line that is drawn in the tunnel uh, between Detroit and Windsor. If a nurse, an American nurse, pokes the arm of a Canadian, it is basically, according to Health Canada, an illegal act. Marika, let me go to you on another issue in vaccines. I had Bill Blair, the minister, on the program earlier. We have no details on vaccine passports, no details of what someone with two doses uh, can do. There's basically no plan about what you're allowed to do when you have a second dose, even though the government also announced, you know, you, you won't have to quarantine by July if you've had second doses, but we don't know any details about that. What do you make of, should we have more details at this point? Certainly we should have more details and there's a lot of questions on even when this starts in July, but just briefly to go back to the last topic on this issue with Michigan. It's my understanding we also don't have sign-off from U.S. officials for this plan. So it's not just the Canadians holding this up. I think Joyce raises important questions about whether we're being creative enough. But it's also not Canada's responsibility to look after ensuring that doses that the U.S. has been hoarding for months are not going to waste. The U.S. decided that they would have a monopoly on the first hundreds of millions of shots created in that country and now they don't know what to do with all of them. So I think it's important to also put this on the U.S. 
on the questions for the federal government, and there are many, yes, it's important to give people a heads up as soon as you've decided to lift some quarantine rules, but the fact that three weeks out, we don't have any explanation of how this will be screened, how we will verify whether people are vaccinated, and what happens with kids, although the government has said they won't separate families, I think is troubling, especially because we've been talking about things like vaccine passports for months and months and months now. Yeah, Mayor, what do you make of that? Like, what, what are you telling your citizens? Yeah, so I, I know that I was on a call a couple of weeks ago with Minister Blair and other Ontario border city mayors, uh, and the topic came up about vaccine passports, but really it came up about the recognition of being vaccinated in any state or any province and trying to develop a harmonized system whereby customs would accept any vaccination record from the 50 United States or any province in Canada. Uh, and so I know they're working towards that, and it will probably be there will probably be some hiccups and some speed bumps uh, early on. Yeah, Joyce, and again, the G7 doesn't have a, a, a universal plan on the passport. Uh, you've got Manitoba rolling out a certificate. Um, what should people be asking about this as they're trying to get in the the famed two-dose summer if they can actually get the second dose? Well, first of all, we're not even sure that if people have been vaccinated twice and have waited the 50, you know, the usual 15 days for the second dose to take effect, whether they will have to self-isolate coming back into Canada. Um, so basically, if the Americans do open this unilaterally, look, there's a lot of talk about the Americans saying, okay, Canada, you do whatever you want. We're going to open our border so Canadians can come in. And when they come back to Canada, that's no longer the Americans' problems, but the Canadian border uh, services problem. Last word, Marika. I'll just add that I think that we will get those details quite quickly. One person told me that they're expecting to use a similar system as with the testing for COVID right now at the borders, that you would upload that testing document, now a vaccine document, to the ArriveCan app. So they are looking at these things, they just haven't shared it with the Canadian public yet. And Patty Haidu did say this past week that even if you are fully vaccinated after two weeks, you will have to self-isolate at home until you get that negative test yeah. result at the border. And so there are at least a few days of self-isolation still in the books for fully vaccinated people. I got to take a short break. Uh, and I know Marika and Joyce are coming back. Mayor Dilkins, what a pleasure to have you on the program. As always, good luck with that. Thanks so much. Thanks, Evan. Have a great day. All right, when we come back, the fight against Islamophobia after that horrific mass murder in London, Ontario. Are there more actions coming, not just words? And will this become an issue in the next federal election? The Scrum tackles that next. Stay right here with Question Period. It was an horrific hate crime that killed four members of a Muslim family and left the fifth, a young boy, orphaned in London, Ontario. This has prompted a serious and much-needed discussion about Islamophobia, and politicians are speaking the right words, but are they following it up with concrete action? The federal government has still not tabled its law to limit hate speech online. There is mounting criticism on all federal leaders who have shown no initiative to challenge, for example, Quebec's Bill 21, legislation designed to ban public servants from wearing religious symbols. Critics say it is seen to target Muslims especially. The Prime Minister was actually asked about this on Tuesday. He was asked whether the secularization bill actually fosters discrimination of hate, and he was clear. Check this out. No. I think, I think it is extremely important uh, to recognize uh, that provinces have the rights to put forward 
uh, bills that, uh, that align with their priorities. So he says no. This is not a new issue. Remember, back in 2017, a Liberal MP introduced something called Motion M103 in the House of Commons. She said that was to combat rising hate towards Muslims. It was called the Islamophobia motion. The Bloc Quebecois caucus and the vast majority of Conservative MPs voted against it, including, by the way, Aaron O'Toole. So what is needed now from federal leadership to address this tragedy? Will legislation to address online hate be enough to ensure attacks like this might never happen again? To talk about that, the Scrum is back. Joyce Napier, our CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. Marika Walsh, political reporter with the Globe and Mail, is here. And our special guest this round is Mustafa Farouk. He is the CEO of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. They have fought and challenged in court Bill 21 in Quebec. Uh, good to see everyone back. And, and Mustafa, thank you so much. You spoke powerfully, by the way, at the vigil in London, Ontario. I know it's been an incredibly difficult week. But now you're urging the federal government, all governments, to do more to fight Islamophobia. Um, can you tell us, do you think they've been too quiet on, for example, Bill 21? And I'd love you to respond to what Mr. Trudeau said when he said it does not dis contribute to discrimination. Well, I think it's very clear that Bill 21 is clearly discriminatory. It is very clear that it prevents uh, Muslim Jews Sikhs from wearing religious symbols it's very clear uh, and it means that if you are Muslim and you wear a hijab you can't become a prosecutor it, that's shameful and the fact that only a few hours away from London uh, that's the reality unacceptable uh, and the Prime Minister as well as all political leaders need to stand up they need to not only say that they oppose Bill 21, but they need a clear plan of what they're going to do to stop this piece of legislation. And there are many things they can do now. Marika, you actually were the person that asked the Prime Minister that question, and you got that response. So your reaction and what you think, uh, how federal leaders are trying to put action to, to this notion of Islamophobia, which has had a long political history where they've stood on different sides of this thing. I think it's very interesting that the Prime Minister seems to have actually softened his position on Bill 21 from when he first spoke about it in 2019. He said at the time in 2019 that it was legitimizing discrimination and now he says it does not foster hate or discrimination. I think that needs more explanation, but I think that Bill 21 is just one element of a much, much broader discussion, not just in Quebec, but across Canada about what the government's doing. And what we have heard from people in the Muslim community, from political watchers, is that since the Quebec mosque attack, similar words were spoken by the government, but not a lot changed. And so the question is, will it change now? I think that people are heartened to see things like this summit announced. And you know, for the other political parties, Aaron O'Toole has got to do a lot of soul searching to address why he was booed at the vigil last week and what that means for how his party has handled this issue. Well, that's interesting. Let me pick that up with Joyce because Joyce, Conservative MP Michelle Rempel Garner came out this week to express her regret for former Conservative policies like the, quote, barbaric cultural practice hotline under the Harper government in 2015. Um, and again, uh, as, as Marika pointed out, Almost all but two MPs voted against the Motion 103 to condemn Islamophobia, including Aaron O'Toole. So does that party now have a reckoning to do with its own past? 
Well, obviously, but you know, it's not the only party that has to do that. Look, after the mosque attack, it took the federal government four years uh, to declare uh, January 29th a day of remembrance, four years. So I know governments work slowly. Um, and actually, sometimes they, they lack a little bit of courage. A few days ago, uh, the Premier of Quebec warned Justin Trudeau, saying to him in French, uh, just reminding you that Bill 21 um, is very popular in Quebec. Um, it is favored by uh, a majority of Quebecers. And the Premier of Quebec is also one of the more popular Premiers. Then, think about it in a political context where Quebec becomes one of the biggest battlegrounds in a possible upcoming election, and you have the reasons, cynical albeit, for why these politicians don't really want to speak mm. up against it. And when they explain it, especially in French, they say, why is the rest of Canada getting so upset about Bill 21? It only applies to Quebec. It is our business. So the warning to these federal politicians is not even subtle. And right. we know that they're all vying for those, those seats. It's a, it's a seat-rich province. Yeah, interesting. By the way, I should say that uh, Green Party leader Annemie Paul on this program spoke out very strongly against Bill 21. But uh, Mustafa, let me just go back to you on this. I know they're going to have this summit, but the whole narrative has been lots of words and listening and then no action. We haven't seen them table the online hate bill. Uh, again, we just talked about Bill 21. Uh, what concrete action do you think needs to happen now? Well, I think there's a range of things, and we've called for this action summit to take place in the next, you know, by the end of July. And the test of government is going to be whether they will implement what comes out, the, pol the concrete public policy recommendations that come out, the test of their commitment to protecting and making sure that nobody else dies. We never want to see another Quebec City mass massacre. We never want to see another IMO killing. We never want to see another London terror attack. The test of governments, the federal governments, the provincial governments, municipal governments will be whether they will actually pass things quickly, and expediently. All right, those powerful words, and I'm gonna leave it there for this week. Uh, a week of tragedy, and a week of mourning, and a, and a week that shook up the country, and we'll find out what action is there. Uh, Mustafa Farouk, thank you for joining us. Uh, obviously, Marika and Joyce, great to see you back here. And thanks, all of you, for watching and joining in the conversation that shapes this country. Uh, I will see you tomorrow on CTV's Power Play on News Channel. We will be back here on Question Period in seven short days. More than ever, hug your loved ones if it's safe to do so, and take care.